Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we were singing tonight, or as I was singing, I was very thankful for the musicians and the gifts that God gives to his people. Um, the worship tonight was wonderful. The song selection, especially, Trey, great job. You hit almost every theme that I wanted to hit at this sermon. So the sermon's like the cherry on top. You didn't really need it, but we're going to have it. So here we go. Tonight is the second part of my attempt to make sense of what Paul is doing in the second half of 1 Corinthians 7. If you're listening online later uh, and you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that first. I'm not going to rehearse everything I said last week, but by way of general review in 1 Corinthians 7, we have seen Paul's counsel to the Corinthian believers is that they should remain as they are. Are you married? Then stay that way and be faithful in your marriage. Are you single? You don't have to seek to be married, but know that if you do decide to get married, you haven't sinned in that either. And specifically last week, I tried to make an attempt. I tried to make explicit the theology behind Paul's logic in this text. Paul is making several exhortations in 1 Corinthians 7, exhortations that don't initially seem to align with the Old Testament. And so I wanted to dig to try and figure out not merely what Paul was saying, but why. And last week, I also noted a tension that arose within me as I was studying this text. And the tension was this. How do I reconcile Paul's commendation of singleness in this text with other biblical passages like Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply? How can Paul commend intentional singleness while also affirming God's statement in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone? These questions bothered me while I was studying, and that was the Holy Spirit's prodding to drive me back to Scripture to study even more. And, I'm, and before we get to all of that, let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 7. I'll start reading in verse 25 and go through the end of the chapter. Here's God's word for us this evening. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as those they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those who were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." 
If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to, married, free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Thus ends Paul's words for us this evening. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use this text, that you would apply it to our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would make us even more like Christ today than we were even yesterday. Lord, mold us and make us after the image of your Son. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I stated last week that this text, that our outline for this text can be remembered with three words. Remain, remember, and recognize. Remain, remember, and recognize. And we saw last week that Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians was to remain as they are. That was our first point. Remain as you are. And that exhortation to remain, even to remain in singleness, is what drove me to study God's Word and to seek to reconcile this tension that I mentioned earlier. And to briefly recap the last half of last week's sermon, we saw that the Bible speaks of singleness and marriage in different and indeed unfolding ways. For example, Genesis begins with God blessing Adam and Eve and commanding them to be fruitful and multiply. That same command is repeated to Noah and to his offspring after the flood. And that link between blessing and offspring becomes formalized as a promise in the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham to give him a seed or an offspring. And he promises an inheritance and a name and a blessing, a blessing through which the whole world would be blessed. And these same promises are reiterated again through Abraham's son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob. And later, God makes another covenant, a covenant with the nation of Israel. And this covenant tied together these, these themes of blessing and offspring and inheritance and a name for all those who are faithful to obey God. And conversely, God also warned the Israelites of curses, the curse specifically of barrenness if they were unfaithful to God. He promises even to the unfaithful that he will blot out their names from among heaven. But before we left the Old Testament, we also saw glimpses of hope and promise. Isaiah 56, for example, God promises that the eunuch would be able to have a name an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, an everlasting name that would be better than any son or daughter could ever give him. And so the Old Testament itself closes with this tension. God is unconditionally promising blessing to Abraham's offspring, but he also warns curses for the unfaithful. How do we reconcile these things? Well, to answer that question, we went to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.16, where we saw that Paul explains that these promises made in the Abrahamic covenant were not made to his offsprings or to his seeds, but to his offspring, singular, who is Christ, Paul says. Paul makes explicit that the Abrahamic promises are given to Christ, 
and the promise given to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. The promise would not be mediated through the Jewish nation's faithfulness to Mosaic law, but solely through Christ's atoning death on the cross. So what does that mean? That means that an everlasting name, that means that blessing, that fruitfulness, all of these are given to Christ. Christ was the faithful one. Christ was the promised seed. Christ was the one who had earned the covenant blessings, and he has secured an everlasting inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth, and Christ has earned a name above all names. Indeed, as Paul makes clear, all that is needed to become a partaker of God's blessings is faith. It's not physical lineage that makes one part of the blessed community. It is faith. It is not by your own obedience that you earn covenantal blessings. It is by faith. And when we come to Christ, we're born again, born of the Spirit. And it is that second birth, the rebirth that makes us into Abraham's offspring. And therefore, heirs of blessing through union with Jesus Christ. And that means that when we come to faith, when we repent of our sins and we unite with Christ as our Savior, we too are given access to these covenantal blessings. So in Christ, we're given a new name. That's why in Revelation 22, it says that the people of God have the Lord's name across their forehead. We are forever a part of His family, forever adopted into the household of faith, which is the church. And because Christ has earned a new name, we don't have to worry about our name ever being blotted out from among heaven. His name is an everlasting name, and we have become partakers of that everlasting name through faith and union with Him. But it's not merely a name. In Christ, we're also given an inheritance. This is not merely an inheritance of a physical plot of land somewhere in Palestine. We have a spiritual inheritance, one that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, the New Testament tells us. But the good news doesn't just stop with name and an inheritance. We're also given the hope of future offspring. And this hope isn't just for the married. It's also for the singles, too. See, Christ kingdom isn't a physical kingdom like Israel was. That's why he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He is king over a spiritually reborn people that possess a spiritual kingdom. And one is born into this spiritual kingdom by the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit. And how does this spirit ordinarily work? Through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. So that means that even if a man is not called by God to beget physical offspring in this life, he can still take part in the kingdom of God, part of the church, and thus has been called to take part in the proclamation of the gospel so that new children may be born into the spiritual kingdom. You see, it's through evangelism, through the proclamation of the gospel that we become, as it were, midwives to the kingdom. We're helping newborn believers come to the fullness that God would have for them. And thus it is that we are all able to be fruitful and multiply. Most of us will marry and bear physical offspring, but all of us believers are called to join in the Great Commission and pursue spiritual offspring, sons and daughters in the faith that we might in Christ subdue and have dominion over this fallen earth one heart at a time. And so to to finally land this plane, I think that This is the theological framework that permits Paul to say what he's saying in this text. He can affirm the goodness of God's original pattern for marriage. 
And he can also, unlike the Jewish tradition, affirm the goodness of intentional singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Both permit fruitfulness and offspring, and both proclaim the gospel. Marriage proclaims the gospel in its complementarity. Marriage between a man and a woman fit for each other is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Paul makes that clear, Ephesians chapter 5. But godly singleness also proclaims the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? Marriage proclaims the gospel in its complementarity, but singleness proclaims the gospel in its sufficiency. A person who is contented in the Lord and serving the kingdom in their singleness proclaims the sufficiency of the gospel, proclaims that Christ is enough. He proclaims that Christ and the blessing found in Him is more than enough to compensate for any sense of temporal loss in this life. Christ is enough to keep a single content through seasons of loneliness. Christ is enough to overcome any sense of loss of legacy or name. Christ is enough to compensate for the absence of a physical helper. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. And I believe that this is the gospel framework, the theological grid that's undergirding Paul's practical exhortations in this life. But before we get to some practical applications, let's move on to our second point from the end of 1 Corinthians 7. We saw above an exhortation to remain as you are. Now in our second point, we'll see the exhortation to remember what is to come. Remember what is to come. Paul's conclusion in this passage is in one sense that he agrees with the celibacy zealots, those people who were arguing that everybody should be single and we should all pursue that. But, but he doesn't agree with them in every way, and this is crucial. He, the way that he argues his conclusion is not the same as their argumentation. He may get to the same destination, but he, the route he uses to get there is very different, and that is significant. And as a footnote, this is an important observation. How we argue a point can be just as significant as what conclusion we're actually seeking. In theology, like in logic and in law and in politics, how you argue, argue for your point can be just as important as what you're arguing for. So we must be careful with our reasoning. Paul like the celibacy crew, is advocating for singleness. But the celibacy team wanted singleness to be a matter of law, of righteousness, and of sin. Paul, on the other hand, has already reframed the whole discussion in terms of singleness as a gift, verse 7. Singleness as a calling, verse 17. And now he's going to reframe singleness in terms of the end, in terms of the final destiny of all mankind. He's reframing the discussion of marriage and singleness by zooming out and looking at eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. Look at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they're not mourning, those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing, those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now notice what Paul's not doing. He's not arguing that we should all seek to be single, nor is he saying that we should all seek to be married. Instead, he says that we should all be thinking and living in light of the end. He is urging an eschatological urgency. 
urgency in our lives because the end is near. This is the ever-present imminency of Christ's return that's throughout the New Testament. He's not saying that if we're married, we should somehow pretend that we're not, pretend to be single. That would be bad. Or if, that, if we're feeling sad, we should just pretend to be happy. We, he's saying that we can't let our temporary, practical circumstances dictate the priorities of our lives. We could put it this way. Marriage is temporary, but God's kingdom and the souls of men are forever. Don't let your marriage and the practical concerns of your marriage impede your focus and attention on eternal realities. Now be clear, marriage is not necessarily an impediment to kingdom work. To the contrary, marriage can be a great aid to kingdom work. That's why God gave Adam a helper fit for him. However, marriage and all of the practical concerns related to it does have the potential to distract us from eternal realities. Schedules, finances, budgets, relationships, chores, all of it tied to marriage and the home can have the potential to either enable and accentuate kingdom effectiveness or have the potential to distract us from singular devotion to the Lord. And so Paul says, in whatever condition you find yourself, married, single, weeping, rejoicing, buying, selling, Use it for the kingdom. Live as though these temporary states are just what they are. Temporary. Because what really counts is what is done for Christ and done in and through Christ. That's what will last. So when you're, when you're planning your calendar and your schedule, don't get your priorities out of whack. Don't let the things that feel most pressing let you squeeze out the things that are eternally pressing. When you're thinking through your budget, remember what is important. Prioritize these things in light of the end. The end is near and this world is passing away. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and all these things will be added to you. I won't press this point much further. Sean's sermon this morning covered very similar topics. You can go back and listen to that. But in short, Paul would have us all, singles, married, all of us, remember what is to come. Next, our third and final point, Paul spends the remainder of the chapter urging the Corinthians to recognize the benefits, recognize the benefits of singleness. Look at verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says he wants them to live lives that are free from unnecessary anxieties. He says that the married man is necessarily anxious about worldly things, which I don't take as necessarily sinful things, but instead proper concerns that are necessary for a husband to have while living with his spouse in an understanding way. You see, we must note that marriage does not prevent great devotion to the Lord, and neither does singleness guarantee it. But singleness does have fewer hindrances and perhaps more advantages, Paul is saying. 
It's easier for a single person to be single-minded on the things of the Lord. The married Christian has no choice. His interests must be divided. He cannot be faithful to the Lord if he is unfaithful to his family. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The single person, however, has a choice. He is free to marry or to not. He is not under restraint to remain single. His choice is not between right and wrong, but between good and better. That's why he says what he does in verse 38. He who marries does well. He who refrains does even better. The point is not that marriage is less spiritual or that singleness is necessarily more spiritual. Both are callings from the Lord and are enabled through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. The point is not to be our circumstantial status, but rather our faithfulness in whatever the status to which we've been called. Are we living for Christ in our singleness? Are we living for Christ in our marriage? Are we contented in Him and Him alone? Are we living for Him and Him alone? You see, too often we look at other people, the status that they have over there, and we, we covet that. We wish that we had a spouse like theirs, wish that we had kids that behaved like theirs, wish we had a marriage that was like theirs, wish we had that person's joy or that person's bank account or whatever. And we're tempted, whatever our situation, to wish it was more like somebody else's situation. And we want to be clear that to want something, indeed to want something else, isn't necessarily sinful. It's, it's not a sinful desire to want a spouse. But the moment that that desire turns into dissatisfaction with what God has given me, that's when it becomes sin. Our desire for a spouse or a desire for peace or for, for, for something else doesn't necessarily mean that we're sinning, but the moment that we've become discontented with what God has given to us in our calling in life, that's when we've crossed the line. And each of us is guilty of that. We've all grumbled about what God has given to me. We're like the Israelites who have come out of the desert, and we're grumbling about this provision of quail and manna. I want to go back to Egypt and eat their vegetables. But God would have us to have so much more, and that provision is found for us in Christ alone, not in the change of our earthly situation. Christ is the one who died for our grumbling and our discontentment. Christ is the one who remained contentedly focused undivided in his attention to the Father's work in this life, not letting the distractions and the cares of this life shift him from the plan of God. He was content with the provision of his Father, even when that provision was to taste of bitterness and death. And because he was undistractedly devoted to the things of the Lord, you too can be forgiven of your distraction. Because he contentedly served God even unto death, you can be forgiven of your discontentedness. That's the good news of the Bible. That our sins can be washed away because of the work of another, namely Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe in this Christ, in his incredible message of forgiveness and redemption from sin? If you do, I hope you do. I hope you stay pressing into Christ. And if you don't, I hope that you'll consider it. What more is needed? What more does Christ need to offer to you? Nothing is lacking from his atonement. 
Nothing is deficient from his provision. The gospel is enough. Christ has come, and by his coming and dying in our place, he has earned us life, and that's the best news of all. And the good news, and that good news is what can keep us content and focused, devoted to the Lord, regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves. And so are you single? Devote yourself anew to contentment in your calling. Remind yourself that Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. And if you desire to marry, you are free to do so. Just count the costs, Paul would say. And if you're married, devote yourself anew to contentment in your calling. Remind yourself that Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. And don't let your marriage distract you from devotion to the Lord. Seemingly neutral, worldly cares can pull us away from the things that really matter most. Eternal things. And so in whatever situation we find ourselves, we're called to recognize the benefits and remember Christ through it all. Now before I close, I want to offer some practical applications from this theology of singleness that we've been able to unearth from chapter 7 here. First, a word to the singles, and then a word to the married. To the singles, I want you to know that you are valuable And you are a needed part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts according to His will. So if you're single, that's a gift that He has given to you in this moment. And that is a gift that the body of Christ needs. Lean into that gift and don't resent it. Because the body would not be complete without all the gifts that the Holy Spirit intends for us to have. You're a valuable and needed part of the body. Second, You're not only valuable and needed, but you are a full member of the body of Christ. You're not second tier. You're not leftovers. You're not a spare part just waiting around for a match to come. Singleness isn't second best. That's not what Paul is saying. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying, actually. Press into the kingdom and use your gifts, the gifts that God has given to you. You're just as much a member of the body of Christ as any other married believer. Third, Do all you can to be godly in your singleness. Do all you can to be godly in your season of singleness. It is easy for those who are single to lapse into a selfish pattern, to lapse into a self-centered lifestyle, to lapse into sexual sin, whether in thought or in deed. Be disciplined. Be accountable to others. And do all you can to cling to Christ during this season of singleness. Lastly, I would encourage our singles, don't be oversensitive. Don't be oversensitive. And here's what I mean. A lot of well-intended, otherwise godly saints have said things to singles that were less than helpful. Maybe you've heard some of these. Don't you want to be married? I can't believe nobody's picked you up yet and you're still single. These statements aren't intended with malice, usually. But don't let them drive you to discontentment. Remember the preceding points. God has not forgotten about you. And He is enough. And you are a needed and full member of the body of Christ. Now to the married, I give these practical encouragements related to the preceding point. Be sensitive with your words. Be sensitive with your word. Singleness can be a confusing state. 
Singles can wrestle with balancing a godly desire for a spouse with contentment in their singleness. And that can be hard. And they can feel very acutely loneliness and fear of the future. They can even wrestle with big questions like, why would a good God make me with a sexual desire and no righteous way to express it? That's a hard question. Just like everybody else in the church, we should be sensitive and compassionate, and we should encourage singles in the Lord. If they've asked for your prayers for them to find a spouse, then of course, pray for that. But don't simply assume that a single person needs fixing, that they need a spouse. To do so is to forget what Paul has argued in chapter 7. And if they're struggling in contentment, then help them in that. If they're lonely, encourage them with fellowship in all things and point, point them to Jesus, who is sufficient for all these things. Secondly, don't think that singleness is second best. Don't fall into the thinking that singleness is second best. Singles aren't stuck in the on-deck circle until they get married. They possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit just like you do. Indeed, some singles are able to minister in ways that we marrieds can't. And so we need to treat them like full brothers and sisters because that's what they are. And related to that, third, remember that your family in Christ is the whole church. Your family is the whole church. We should seek as a body of Christ for there to be no lonely people in the church. That should be our goal. We need to be opening up our homes to one another and relating to one another, not just in our nuclear family, but into our, our, our entire church family. Lastly, keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Earthly human marriage matters, but it is temporary. It will not last forever, Mark 12, 25. Our relationship with Christ must come first. And so we all, married and single, need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ in heaven. And so we get to close tonight by fixing our eyes again on Christ in heaven. At the Lord's table, we see not only the Lord's death pictured, but also the inevitability of our own death, should the Lord delay but we are not left without hope. We're given the promise of a new body, a resurrected body, and we have that promise because Christ has first sacrificed His own body. The bread and the cup symbolize God's love for us, demonstrated in Christ's death on the cross. If you are marked by the fruit of discipleship seen in Acts chapter 2, that is devotion to the apostles' teaching found in God's Word, to the fellowship of the saints, to the breaking of bread with God's people, and to prayers, then we invite you to join us at the Lord's table. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then let the plates pass. First, believe in Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, and obey Him in baptism, and then join us at the table. I'll pray, and then our table servants will come. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life that we have in Christ, the gift of a new name, the gift of a new family, the promise of inheritance and life to come, life everlasting. Lord, take this, these elements at the table. Set them apart. Use them to sanctify your people. Indeed, Lord, bless them and bless us through it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.